0: let's get started. We're going to talk about cultures. I love talking about, we're going to talk about cultures and the word. How does all this connect? That's our mission in life today. So hopefully I'm going to, we will make each other think, because that's the whole point, so we can be better, so we can walk with our Messiah better. So um, let's pray. Father, I just love you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for an opportunity to just be with you, Lord, to learn from you, Lord, learn from each other, Lord, your words, Lord, so that we can go out and not only affect ourselves, but to affect our culture. That's why we've been born again, so that we can help someone else, Father, so that we can um, be a blessing. I give you praise for all that you're going to do. And Baruch Atay Adonai Eloheinu Melaka Olam, Asher Kedoshana B'mitzvotah La'asok Bedevra Torah. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments, and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of the Torah. Amen. Amen. Alright, well today we're going to be talking about African, Greek, Jewish, and Chinese cultures and the believer's response. We started last week and we talked some about the, the the connection between Greek cultures and Jewish cultures. And today I think we're going to get more to, hopefully we can finish and get to everything today. thought I'd do a little... Um, just talk about kind of where we are. And I say where we are as far as the Messiah in retrospect to cultures. Think about a timeline. If you can visualize before Messiah, when is before Messiah? Well, that's before the Messiah came on the earth. That's what I'm referring to, right? So I'm thinking of all the time before. That means all the way back to creation. Creation, if you look at, The most credible biblical timeline that I've seen. Creation's about 4000 BC. About. And we're at what? 2019? That sounds weird. 2019. I'm class of 1990. Yeah. Anyway. Anybody else class 1990 here? Willing to admit? Older? Younger? Yep. Okay. All right. Uh, I love timelines because timelines just kind of locate ourselves. So. Think about before the Messiah, the time of the Messiah, when the Messiah was here walking on the earth. When he was here, he was a man. He was, he was fully man, but he was fully God, completely. And that's also, we're not even going to venture there today. And then after the Messiah. And I would say after the Messiah is now. And Brad is awesome and figured it out. Thank you very much. So again, so right now we are at a time that's after the Messiah. we can visualize before the Messiah, the Messiah, after the Messiah. Then after the Messiah, what's after this as far as the timeline? Well, this is debatable. Depends on who you're talking to, and I'm not going to fight anybody. But I do believe that there's going to be a, something called the rapture, and we're not even going to talk about that a lot. I just want to just, just kind of venture that just to have our timeline. Um, And then after the rapture, however you believe the rapture is going to occur, I'll leave that one alone, uh, you're going to have a time of tribulation. And I think almost everybody in here believes there will be a time of tribulation. We may differ on the rapture, but everybody believes there's going to be a time of tribulation. If you read the book of Revelations, there's a lot that's in there that has not happened. I believe it's very clear. What happens after the tribulation? Well, I believe it's something called the millennial reign. And the millennial reign is when, I like, to, I like to think of it this way, when the Messiah will be here on the earth. He will be at 555 Jerusalem Lane. I don't know where he's going to be at, but I just made that up. I just, but he's going to be physically here on the earth, if that makes sense. We will be with the king, Yeshua, physically on the earth for 10 centuries. That's the millennial reign. That's what it means. We will be under a theocracy form of government new glorified bodies. It'll be a theocracy. What was God's original intent for a government? You ever thought about that? What happened in the book of Kings? This was later, but since it just came up in my spirit. Um, 1 Samuel 8, 4. Let's read that. It says, all the elders of Israel gathered together And came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. In it is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt into this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know that, the, that what, what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. What, and just think about it, what do you think the ultimate form of government and as far as God is concerned would be? I think it would be a theocracy. I think it's clear that it would be a theocracy. Why do we not have a theocracy today? Well, honestly, just because of sin. And I was listening to, um, anybody heard of David Jeremiah? He's an excellent teacher. Um, He was talking about this. And one thing that I thought was excellent that he said was simply, the only reason, well, there's many reasons, but there's this thing called sin. And I don't think, matter of fact, I know, we don't want to be under a theocracy the way our world is today. And that's just the way it is. It's Think of this point here. You, we need to use the most effective available resource to accomplish the task. What's the most effective available culture or governmental system available today? Honestly, I'm not going to pick one, but I think that's what we need to do. And I think that's what we have done. And, and again, that's what I was trying to get at here. Let me go back to this. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. says, And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? Come, let us go up. You want to sing? Okay, I'm saying. Right. That he may teach us his ways... And that we may walk in his path, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Wow. I want to read another version. I like this version. It says, people from many places will go there and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God, of Jacob. Then God will teach us his way of living and we will follow him, his teaching. The Lord's message will begin in Jerusalem on Mount Zion and we will go up, we will go out to all the world. Where are they talking about here? We're talking about Jerusalem. We're talking about the temple. I believe God's original intent, and I haven't been to Israel. I'm looking forward to go one day, but I love hearing the stories about Israel and how there's so many different cultures, so many different groups of people. You have Chinese, you have people from Egypt, you have people from Nigeria. They come to this one central location to worship Adonai. That's beautiful, and I believe that's God's original intent. God desired, and that's what's going to happen in the end of days. Let's read Zechariah 14, 16. It says, Then all the survivors from all the nations that attack Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, Adonai, Seveot, to celebrate Sukkot. This is in Zechariah. This is a, this is a prophecy about the end of time. It's saying in the end of times we will go up to worship and and, and celebrate Sukkot. Isn't that beautiful? We just get a head start now. Which is beautiful because we're learning how to celebrate and honor him by celebrating the feast right now. And I think everybody's gonna do this. This is not something that's just gonna be central to one group. This is something that's this is God's original intent for us to do. But again, I don't think it's gonna happen until the end of the days at all. There's a song. Y'all remember hearing the song, Joy to the World? Everybody remember that song. Joy to the World, the Lord is come. Na, 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 na. Bringing back those Christmas days for some of y'all who celebrated Christmas way back when. Anyway, that song is from the millennium. Think about the, think about the words. It says, Joy to the World, the Lord is come. That means the Lord is here on the earth. The earth receive her king. That's King Messiah. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven, and you get the point. But the point is, if you listen to those lyrics, it's talking about the millennial reign. So just to go back to review, we, I, li- I like to start with a timeline. Think of before the Messiah. Think of the Messiah is here, when he physically was on the earth. After the time of the Messiah. Then the rapture, some people, anyway, we won't go there. But we know the tribulation. Everyone agrees that there will be a time of tribulation. After the time of the tribulation will be something called the millennial reign. And I believe that's when the Messiah will be here on the earth. This is God's ultimate form of culture. This is what God wants. He wants all of us to come up. That's why if you ever study, if you have time to just study the temple, the temple is so beautiful to study because the temple is not there. It's not a big slaughterhouse. It's a place, when you study, it's a place that we are supposed to go and get cleansed. It's about, it's about rectifying and reunification of us to God. That's all the offerings are. It's not, I don't even like to use, I like to say the S word. It should be a cuss word. And I say a cuss word because the word sacrifice sometimes gives a negative connotation of what the offerings really are. The offerings are there for us to draw near to God. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to draw near to him so we can walk with him every single day. That's what the temple is for. That's the whole point. There's other things that went on in the temple. I think the temple's, honestly, like I said, in the last days, it's going to be a great place. It's going to be a place of singing, rejoicing. The Levites are going to be in there with all those instruments. It's going to be a beautiful thing. That's the ultimate form of government that's going to happen in the last day. And again... We need to use the most effective available resource to accomplish the task. What's the best government at the task at the time? Again, a theocracy is God's best form of government. Obviously, Honestly, because of sin, it's just not going to work now. I just don't believe it, and I think everybody in, this, in here, I wouldn't want to live under that type of system with the people and sin the way it is right now. I just don't think it's going to work until the Messiah comes back. When the, Messiah's come, when the Messiah comes back, it'll work. Then, because he will be in charge. Here's another example. Marriage with husbands and wives stand together till death do us part. Is that God's best? Sure. That's God's best for a husband and wife to stay together, till, mar- till death do them part. But does sometimes things happen? Like, think of abuse. Think if there's an abusive situation and the husband or the wife, either one, they're being so abusive. Should the husband or wife stand that situation? Yeah, probably not. Is that God's best? No, they probably need to run as fast as they can. God's best is for them to stay stay together. But you do the best that you can in that situation. You make the best. You say, you know what? I know that this is what God would want me to do, but I need to be smart and say, you know what? This is really what I need to do. But God, I believe in his word, and that's something that I've noticed when I'm studying. God shows you exactly what he wants. He's not beating around the bush at all. He shows us that. But then it's up to us to hear from him to say, okay, I need to do this. I need to go left. I need to go right. Personally, my life mission is to know God and to help others to know God. From person to person, house to house, culture to culture. That's our mission. And as a believer, our mission is to, we're in the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to him through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God has called us to reconcile the world to him. That's our mission. When we get an opportunity to share or allow our lives to share the gospel, we should be honored and take it as a privilege and not a chore. Your life is a setup to share share the gospel. That's the whole point. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead, and I want to go ahead and connect, because we talked about a lot of this last time. I want to connect, again, our individual lives. We affect our individual lives to change, because we cry out to God, he's going to change us. But how do we change the culture around us? I want to talk about how did the African culture connect with the Jewish or Christian culture? How did this happen? So this is our history lesson, somewhat. Jesus went to Egypt to spend some time. That was the Messiah going to Egypt, and Egypt is North Africa. Egypt, he was connecting with the African people there. And I guarantee that word spread throughout the country at that time. Another connection was Simeon. He carried the cross of the Messiah from Cyrene. Cyrene is a country in Africa, another connection with Africa. Philip baptized a, baptized a Kushite official from ancient Nubia. This is in Acts 8:26 through 27, another connection with Africa. The truth is, there is a history of Jews and Christians in Africa. Christian, Christianity did not only, and I say only because it did, but not only. Christianity did not only become known to Africa through the transatlantic slave trade. That, that, that slavery was dehumanization of people. I don't even like to call that slavery, but we do because that was just a a dehumanization of of people. It wasn't really slavery because biblical slavery is more like indentured servanthood. It's really like long-term live-in work because slaves were treated with respect. They weren't treated like cattle and animals like the the transatlantic slave trade. Something else to note, um, Africans did not sell our own people to each other. There was no black power or pan-Africanism back then. Let me explain. And some some people call it black-on-black crime. It it wasn't. At that time, there was no black. It didn't even make sense. There were just different cultures. You had different cultures like the the Fulani. You had the Mandika. You had the Songhai. You had the Congo. You had different cultures. But there wasn't a black. That just didn't make sense. And a lot of times we try to understand cultures from our 21st century mindset and we try to go back and it doesn't make sense the way we see things now. There wasn't; It just didn't make sense to have anything to say black at all. So there was no black power or pan-Africanism back then. Black people did not become black until they came to the new world. Slavery. That's just the case. Because now that they came to the new world Now there's a shared culture, now they're shared. You have the Fulani, you have these different cultures. They all came together now, and now they're in this one place, and now we're this people, this group of people. Because in Africa, there are about approximately 54 different countries, about thousands of different languages and cultures. And some people don't even realize Africa is not even a country. Africa is a continent. It's the second largest continent. It's it's one of the seven, so it's not even a country in the way we think of. But that's how we talk. And I want to talk about this. Oh, this is kind of review. This is what happens when cultures collide. And this is what the negative what happens when some cultures collide. Sometimes we have positive response. Sometimes we have this. And this is the picture that I wanted to show last week, but this was the picture, because we talked about Alexander the Great last week, but this is just where he he, um, conquered last week that we talked about. All right, I want to talk about this guy. Um, His name is Marcus Cicero, and I can't read that. I'm going to read it right here. Um, He said, it has been ascertained, too, that there is not a scrap of silver in the island, nor any hope of booty except from slaves. But I don't fancy you will find any with literary or musical talents among them. Let me read this. That was um, this guy. His name was uh, was Marcus Cicero, and he was a Roman orator. And what I'm what I'm trying to show here is it says the pink-skinned northerner were not like us. This was actually racism. These, these were different people. They were not different skin color. They were actually the same skin color. It was almost like white on white crime. Has anybody ever heard white on white crime? That makes no sense, huh? At all. But these were, these were white um, Romans. I even hate to say white, but these were Romans, and they were enslaving their northern European components. So it was kind of like white on white slavery. You don't hear that at all. But anyway, let me keep going. We're that we're white exactly. It's a it's a culture thing. It's it really is a culture thing and it is a culture thing. Romans made slaves of their northern European counterparts because they were different people in their minds. They were different. They didn't normally a group of people would not enslave their own people. That makes no sense. Why don't you enslave your own people? Sometimes people may have been enslaved because they had to pay off a work debt looking at the history, or for other reason, but you generally didn't enslave your own people. In our language, oh, I read that, the, cult, the Celts and other European groups enslaved other groups as well, but generally not their own people. The Romans and Greeks and other European groups made it clear that the enslaved groups were not like them. That just means they were different. They were in other. That's what I'm getting at. There's another guy. His name is Strabo. Um, Strabo was a Greek geographer, philosopher, and historian who lived in Asia, Asia Minor, during the transitional period of the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire. He makes his opinions of northern Europeans pretty clear. And he's just, I'm just talking about the difference as far as the other. And let me read this. It says, the home of men who were complete savages and led a miserable existence because of the cold. He's talking about those other. And these, again, they were just other groups of people people but when it came to Africans some conveniently forget about cultural groups selling slaves to other groups not their own people so again it's just a name I know we need to refer to it because people say black people say white we know that we're all children of God we know that in here but that's something that we don't want to allow to get in us we need to be able to relate but that's not that's not how God relates to us all right So let me keep reading. But when it comes, all right. So so it was not blacks selling other blacks. By saying this, when some people say this, some are saying that we we brought this on ourselves, our own people, our own people to each other. Foolish Africans selling black on black crime. I hear some people say. But again, um, it was like the Fulani versus the Mandinka, the Songhai versus the Congo, and so forth. All these people saw themselves as inherently different but just just like the Germans and the Celts. Domestic slaves were sometimes part of the family. Sometimes slaves had slaves in my research. I thought that was interesting. This image of a Mali Empire regulation about slaves, it said, do not ill-treat the slaves. We are the master of the slave, but not the bag that it carries. And this was just one of the regulations, but there's a lot of regulations on how they related to slavery and slaves at the time. It just wasn't the inhumane slavery that the transatlantic slave um, perpetrated. Um, there was a guy, his name was Mansa. Mansa Sikora was the sixth Mansa of the Mali Empire. He was once a slave. So he was once a slave and he rose to be the ruler of this empire, which is amazing. Most became slaves through um, warfare. Alright, now let's talk about how Christianity, aka also um, Judaism, connected with the African cultures. And this is one culture, that's pretty good, um, one culture called Nobatia in the 5th century. Um, his name was King Silco. He, recon- he was first recognized as a Christian king from Nobatia. Another king from Mercuria. This Christian nation stopped the Arabs from conquering further south. This halted the spread of Islam in this area of the continent for some time. They took on Christian names like King Abraham, King Solomon, and King David. So they were serious about their newfound religion. King Mac- and that's Mercuria. Archaeologists have found tombstones with ancient Nubian script along with Christian symbols. And that's just showing the connection with, the, um, with, the, with Christianity, also Judaism and some of these African cultures. Um, Elodia from 6th century, described by historians as being larger and having more wealth than Mercuria, was also another um, African nation that was connected by the um, Christianity and Judaism. The Axumite Empire, or Axumite Aks- Empire, was an important trading nation in northeastern Africa, growing from the pro Axumite period, 4th century BCE, to achieve prominence by the by the first century CE, it also alleged resting place of the Ark of the Covenant and the home of the Queen of Sheba. Corresponding to present-day Ethiopia, this was an ancient African civilization that traded widely throughout the ancient world, converting to Christianity in the fourth century. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church continues to be the tradition of the majority of Ethiopians using its language Ge'ez and perpetuating um, aspects of the civilization artistic tradition. Ethiopian culture today has its roots in this civilization. The decline from the 7th century has been attributed both to climate change and to defeat at the hands of Judith, a legendary Jewish queen. Nah, not sure true that is. The 51 references in the Bible to Ethiopia refer to this civilization. In the eighteenth century, enslaved black preachers in the United States began to revive interest in the Aksumite Empire and other ancient African civilizations as a platform to instill pride and self-respect among their people. This gave momentum to what has been described as Ethiopianism, Ethiopianism, which revered Ethiopia as a symbol of black accomplishment and the promised land for uprooted Africans. Reverence for Ethiopia has developed into a multi-billion-dollar, ranging from industry, ranging from roots of reggae music, so forth and so on. Okay, many Africans in the West. So that was that was really East Africa. Now let's dive over to West Africa. We're talking about how did um, Christianity, Judaism connect with Africa? One way. Obviously, there's more ways. Many Africans in the West came to be introduced to Christianity and Judaism, specifically, according to historians, through their many trade relations with the Portuguese. Because they were trading goods and services with each other, and not only were they trading goods and services, they were trading ideas. They were trading concepts. This is another way that Christianity made it to West Africa. Christianity is the major religion in the Democratic Republic of Congo today followed by more than 90% of the population. Denominations include Roman Catholic, 42.8%, Protestant, 38%, and other Christian denominations. So that's the African culture. Let's talk about the Chinese culture. And again, the big picture is how did God In his sovereignty, how did he connect with these different cultures? How did we we get to know this? Um, Personally, everybody in here, maybe everybody in here, most of us are Americans, most of us. So our culture is American. So how did we come connected with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Many different ways, absolutely. But I'm referring to those early civilizations before, way before there was an America, way before. Let's talk about China. How did China and their culture connect to God? This was very interesting. Um, and I'm probably going to bash these names, probably. Susa Qing was a Chinese historian of the Han Dynasty. And this is where some of this information is coming from. He recorded that China's first king, Huang Di, and that's said he lived. Approximately twenty five hundred to twenty four hundred BC, he went to a place called Taishan and built an altar to Shangdi. No worship of idols, but only the worship of one supreme God. And focus on the supreme God. Just focus on that. Think about this. This was twenty five hundred BC. What occurred around twenty five hundred BC if y'all can think back to timeline? About 4,000 B.C. was creation. About 2,500 B.C. was around the time of the flood. So visualize this. What's going on around the time right after the flood? Did we have the Torah then? No. No, There's absolutely no Torah. So how in the world did this civilization begin to worship a one supreme God? Because think about the things that we've learned about Abraham's time. What were they doing during Abraham's time? A lot of idol worship. So this particular culture, they were worshiping one supreme God. And this is at the time of right after the flood. So maybe, and this is a conjecture, maybe they got a lot of this just from hearing from, from those that were before Abraham. If that makes sense. Those different cultures. Absolutely. They could've, it could have been, yeah, a- absolutely. Absolutely. And, but the, the awesome thing about it is we just have these records that show that this group, were, they were worshiping a supreme God. And the, the question is just where they get it from. And I don't know if we're going to have that answer, honestly, but it's, al- it's always good to, to do some conjecture. And I had a book. The book that I got this from, it's um, the discovery of the Genesis in ancient... Okay, I forgot the name. But I'm getting a lot of this information of discovering the... Um, the, the Genesis account um, from this record. So I wish I had the book, but I don't. Anyway, let's keep going. Yes, I'll tell you later. Yeah, actually, it was it was in last week's teaching. It was in because I had it and I showed it. It might be in my, anyway. Let me read this. It says he did. Oh, let's read this in this right here. This right here comes from that the Chinese historian, and it's like it's like we're piecing together a puzzle. Anybody like doing puzzles? Maybe like doing puzzles. Sometimes you have one piece. You ever did? Me, I was we were doing, um, Act I was helping uh, Caleb with his puzzle, we finished the whole puzzle, and we lost one piece. Don't you hate that? It was a fight. You hate that. You, but we found the piece later. That's how I feel a lot of times when I'm studying things. Because God will show you a little piece here. He'll show you another piece. And then you'll put this together. I think, I think matter of fact, I know... We should do this for the rest of our lives. We're going to put this piece together. We'll connect this over here. Somebody will show us this and go, wow, okay, that makes sense. See, that's what happened when Daphne and I came over into the, I say, the Jewish movement because that's when we started putting some things together because now a lot of things make sense. I go, wow, that's where this came from. I never saw this before in my life, and I think we need to continue to do this. If not, we're not growing. We're just fooling ourselves. Anyway, that was a side note. Let me read it says, in ancient times, the son of heaven of the, of the Chai dynasty personally and reverentially sacrificed to Shang-Di at the border. That was why it is called the border sacrifice. So they sacrificed to Shang-Di. He did what was called the border sacrifice. And Confucius, because there's a lot of um, those that are Chinese who, in their culture, there's something called Confucianism. This is like this is a religion. But this is something that he said. So he knew about this. So he did what was called the border sacrifice. And Confucius considered the border sacrifice the most important activity of man. And listen to something else they did from this this historian. How did they do the sacrifices? Five days before the sacrifice, all animals must be inspected, the firstborn and clean. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the scripture. Sounds like something very familiar. How did they know this? Three days before the sacrifice, the emperor, emperor would go on a total fast to sanctify his mind and soul. Hmm. The day before, the emperor would come and wash his face and hands in a golden basin, just like the priests. Incense were burned. And this sounds like I'm reading from the scripture, the temple. But this is coming from these Chinese, this historian, which, Anyway. Incense were burned, and they would sing praises to Shang Di. He would fall to the ground and prostrate himself before the monotheistic god Shang Di. One of the songs were "The Songs of Beginning peace." and I have that one, which is well, this is just another. Let me read that the ceremonies of the celestial and terrestrial sacrifice are those by which man serves Shang Di. Something else from that historian. And this is actually one of their songs that they would sing. And let me read it. It says, you have promised O.D. Remember, his name was Shang-D. To hear us, for you are our father. Your child, dull and unenlightened. Am unable to show forth my dutiful feelings. I thank you that you have accepted our pronouncement. Honorable is your great name. With reverence, we spread out these gems and, and silks. And as swallows rejoicing in the spring... Praise your abundant love. It almost sounds like something you could find in in Psalms. But it's not. It comes from their historian. Anyway. Um, The emperor functioned, if you kind of visualize. Because it was the emperor who was doing all these things. But he functions kind of like a high priest and a king. Um, Until Emperor Qi Shi Huang... Most corrupted king in Chinese history from 259 to 210 B.C., he did did unite China, but he rejected the worship of Shangdi. So visualize that from 2500 B.C., which was around the time of the flood to about 259 to 210 B.C., they worshipped a monotheistic god called Shangdi, if you can visualize that. During this time, during the time of this other emperor called Qi Shi Wang, they began to, this is where Buddhism came from during this time, Confucianism and Taoism. And this is just something to note, if you are listening to me right now and you are from the, this culture, your roots go all the way back to the worship of a monotheistic god, to a one god, not Buddhism not Confucianism or Daoism. That came after that. That's my whole point. Jesus lived around the time of the, and this is just connecting, of the Han Dynasty. The Han Dynasty was one of the longest of Chinese major dynasties, and I want to skip down to this part. During the Han Dynasty, which was the same time that our Messiah was on the earth, There are documents during the Han Dynasty that reveal the birth of our Messiah. And also suggest an eclipse that occurred during the same time of the darkness at his crucifixion. Isn't that good? But that was in China. That wasn't in Jerusalem. But it's just confirmation of the scripture all the way there. Amen. I love this. Alright, I want to go down to the letters. This letter is obvious. I'm going to let you read it. What do you think? A boat is a vessel plus eight people. Uh, That sounds like Noah's account, right? This is their letter today. This is just showing the roots, where it came from, where they get this idea from. Because remember, this was right after the flood, right after the flood. So you think they had knowledge of the flood? Sure they did. Even if they were all the way over there in China. They were not in Jerusalem. Let's go to some other letters. Can y'all see that one? A garden is dust plus breath plus two persons plus enclosure plus garden. That's garden. That's their language. That's beautiful. This is my favorite. Lamb plus me equals righteousness. Can we get any more clear than that? That is absolutely talking about the gospel account, but this is, talking, this is coming from the Chinese language, which is a, I have a few more here that I didn't put pictures up. Um, desire, covet is the picture of two trees plus woman. Think about it, desire, evil. All right. Negative is serpent. Plus trees. You know what happened? Happiness is God, one man in the garden. It's, it's kind of like a code language. But you know what? In in Hebrew, it's also a code language, because it, it's the pictures. Like the word Abba, which means father. Olive um, means what is olive? Olive means strength. And what's the other word? Beit means house. And Abba is father, so Abba means the father is the strength of the house. That's beautiful. And that's found, can we find this in our English language? No, because it's too young, to be honest. But if you look at these old ancient languages, we see all these connections to our God, which is beautiful. Alright, another name. um, Older brother. Older brother means man plus mouth. So how can we relate that? The oldest is usually the spokesperson of the family. Make sense? It's beautiful. I love it. Um, So again, from 2500 BC, the Chinese language origins um, has its roots in the god of, I believe, and if you look at others, if you read the book that I don't have the name for, that you can see me later, it talks all about how the god of Israel is connected to this Chinese language. You got to see it. It's beautiful. Now let's go to the scripture. In um, Ezekiel 38 is a prophecy about the land of Magog and all the distant cousins that live there are associated with each other, just the Russians and Chinese. One of the, one of the Mongolic nomadic tribes in this area bears a relationship with China. They are the Kitan people, a people responsible for China's modern name and one of China's biblical names is Chitam. So when you're reading the scripture and it refers to Cheatham, they're referring to China, at least from this resource that I um, found. So Ch- China is Cheatham. In Isaiah 23, verse 1, it has a prophecy about the land of Cheatham, which is China. And also to connect to, some, to Jews that are in China, there are some called the Kaifeng Jews. Anybody heard of the Kaifeng Jews? No? Maybe? All right, the Kaifeng Jews are members of a small Jewish community in Kaifeng. ...in the Henan province of China... ...who have assimilated into Chinese society... ...while preserving some Jewish traditions and customs. So again, the whole point... ...last week we talked some, a little bit about the, the Greek culture... ...connecting to God, connecting to Jewish, um, Jewishness. This week we talked about Africa connecting to Jewishness. We talked about China connecting to... Jew, ...and we could do this with every, almost every civilization... But the point is, God's culture is going throughout the world. We take God's culture on the inside of us. Like I said, I believe God's, I think, I believe God's best is a theocracy. We have a theocracy on the inside of us. Because Messiah is king. Messiah should be our king. So if Messiah says it, guess what? I do it personally. I would love that for that to be for our society. But is it that way? No. So that means we've got to take our culture and somehow take it to the world. How do we do that? We do that one person at a time. I got some questions for you. The question is, and you can think about these. Actually, we have some time to even answer some questions. I say answer questions. Answer questions or start a discussion. All right, the question is, how do we respond to culture? Have you experienced responding to culture, and how did you handle it? Was it a good experience or bad experience? What are some modern-day cultural issues, and what does the Torah say about them? Let's stop there. Let's pause. What are some modern-day cultural issues today, right now, and how do we respond? Somebody help me out. Abortion. Abortion Abortion is, does the Torah speak on the abortion? Yes, absolutely. So we should go to the Torah for answers about abortion. I think I think personally that that one is cut and dry with abortion, that's obviously the killing of a baby to me, personally, but I know others have different arguments, which is okay. And I think when you're having a discussion about cultural issues, I think we should remain very open to listen to people and not shut people down. Let me give an example, I told y'all at school, in my high school, we have this group, teenagers, it's called First Priority. We meet every Friday. We have Bible study, talk about the Lord, leadership, and different things like that. And last week, a student came in, and I, I kind of left the room, but she said something that wasn't um, in line with the Bible. Anyway, she said something that was pretty negative, and some of the other kids must have said something pretty mean to her, and she left crying, which is pretty bad, Right? That's horrible. That was horrible. And I was upset. The other teacher that's in there was very upset. But that's not how we should handle it. If someone says something that disagrees with what we're thinking, honestly, we still need to love on them. We need to do our, our best. Obviously, we're going to lean back to the Torah, right? We're going to do our best to lean back to the Torah, but we need to do our best to hear people out. Because i got to respect your opinion, even if I don't agree with you. I, am I right? What do you all think? Absolutely. you got to respect people because if not, nobody's going to talk to you. If you're just shutting people down as soon as you start talking, then people are going to run the other way really fast. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely, and and just for our online audience, the, the question or the comment was: When we hear the media, sometimes they don't do a good job unpacking things. Matter of fact, they'll do a other versus like this group versus another group, and we do this all the time. As a matter of fact, in the I say the media, I almost hate to blame the media, but a lot of times we hear things. It's normally, it goes to this group, a lot of times it goes to racism, you know, we, a lot of times it goes to, we're talking about this thing and we're trying to pit this group against another group, but we need to do our due diligence to unpack it for people, you know, and I don't want to just say young people, we need to unpack it for each other, because honestly there's a lot of confused people on this planet. And we need to do our due diligence to understand the Torah so that we can help people to unpack things, like abortion. So if someone disagrees with us, we need to say, okay, well, what is the scripture, if they're willing to hear the scripture. Because sometimes people, and that's something when we're talking to people, sometimes people don't want to hear the scripture. And that's hard. But if they don't, we have to do our due diligence to get them back to the scripture. So, just now, what's another cultural issue that we could unpack with the Torah? The importance of the rule of law was the statement. That's another cultural issue, which if we don't have the Torah, can we have laws? Honestly, I don't think we can. I don't think we can at all. And I think when we're talking to people, and one good way to, I say dismantle, to talk to people about something like that is to answer them according to their own logic. It's like if you believe, like somebody who's an atheist, and they don't believe that there is a god then i want to turn that around and use his logic to answer his own question as much as i can because it's going to blow up on him every single time because it just doesn't work now how do we do? we need to obviously we need to be studied up and learn so that we can explain and talk about those types of things you know cuz someone who's an atheist they don't even they don't they believe everything happened by random chance and if everything happened by random chance, how do you get logical thought out of random chance? You don't. You can't. So the, the fact that he can even have a conversation means that he, believe, he doesn't believe in random thought. You see how you can just, you got to do our due diligence to turn that back on him. And again, it takes study. And this is something, I want to read this. Um, Romans 13 if y'all remember the story last week with um, Shimon Hatsadiq, he, um, he was the high priest who went, it was, it was from the Midrash, he was a high priest who went to meet Alexander the Great. And basically, to make a long story short, he told Alexander the Great that he was praying for him because these other groups of people, they were going to try to kill him. So, and that, so this was a response to the culture. So something that we can do for our culture, we need to be praying for our culture. Because as we pray, God is going to lead us to say things. He's going to lead us to do things. Um, Here's an example here. Um, Israel prayed and God heard their cry. God respected Pharaoh and used Moses to ask him to let my people go. Think about that. Why did God tell Moses to go tell Pharaoh To let my people go. He's God. Why did he have to go through all that? Think about Romans 13. Romans 13 says everyone must submit to the governing authorities. Even God allowed himself to submit to the authority of Pharaoh. He didn't have to respect Pharaoh like that at all. He could have just took him out. I think I said last week he could have took him out on a magic carpet. He's God. But God is even, he binds himself by his word. That's what he does, and that's what we should do as well, and that's Romans 13, and let me finish reading this statement. God respected Pharaoh and used Moses to ask him to let my people go. This was respect for a total disrespectful leader, and I think I said this last week too. Imagine if, because we are born in one of the greatest countries on this planet. I'm just, I'm biased. You're probably biased too because you're here. But we are biased to this country. There's a lot of great countries out there as well. There's a lot of other countries. But we are set up for success in a great way. And to be honest, a lot of Americans, a lot of us, just to be honest, we're kind of overprivileged Americans. Do you know what I'm talking about? We're kind of spoiled. And honestly, I'm grateful for being spoiled. And that's just the way it is. Imagine if you were born in North Korea. And if somebody's in North Korea, maybe they're listening right now. They're not being set up for success. If you ever watch any documentaries on things that go on in North Korea and and how they treat their people, they treat their people like, I mean, honestly, like they're slaves, and they're in this country. And they can't even, some of them, they can't even say statements unless they refer back to their leader. They're being set up for, I mean, wow. But there are people, there's a lot of people who come out of that situation even though they're not set up for success, if that makes sense. This is something I want to make sure I show. China. China obviously is not at the moment as a nation a Christian nation. But looking at all the underground churches and all the ministry that's going on there, look at this. China could become the third largest Christian nation by 2030. I love that. That's beautiful, and I believe that's what's going to happen one person at a time as we connect to other cultures and make people feel welcome as we talk to people. Because we can't, because I think sometimes we have our ideology and we're so, oh, I know everything mentality, and we can't tell nobody nothing because we think we know it all. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Don't point at anybody, because if you're pointing at somebody, you're pointing back at yourself, Right? Because that's something that we have to do. We need to, we need to stay open. Um, something that, that I memorized. When shown proof of counter's belief, some are filled with great grief. What we should feel is joy and relief. But guess what? Is it hard sometimes when you're confronted to truth with truth to change your mind? Just be honest. Yeah, it is. It's hard. It's difficult. If somebody is overweight and you say, dude, and you don't know them at all, You say, dude, you need to lose 20 pounds. What do you think is going to happen? You might get punched in the eye, right? (laughs) You might have to duck. It might be true, but it might not be something you need to say to that person at that time, right? It might be that you need to be in relationship with them before you can share. Sometimes we don't even need to share. Sometimes we just need to sit and just say nothing. It's kind of like the sitting shiva. When somebody, um, when somebody's mourning, when somebody's has a, a, a loved one passed, you're supposed to sit for seven days. That comes from the book of Job. You're not supposed to say nothing. You're supposed to just shut up and just sit there. But some of us want to just talk. Oh, this is what happened. This is why this happened right here. Just shut up and just be. Like I told, I don't know if I told you all last week, but I also get an opportunity to do homeless ministry. And sometimes when I get to go out there, we go to exit. If the boys were here, they'd help me. Exit 76 like once a month, and there's a lot of guys out there who started off in a bad way. When I say some of them were on drugs, some of them were so many different horrible situations, and they've come out of that situation one step at a time. And sometimes you think you're going there to minister. Sometimes you're not going, doing nothing but going there to sit down and let listen to them talk because sometimes they're going to minister to you. They're going to tell you about the gospel. And honestly, I think that's okay Sometimes we just need to make ourselves available to love on people and allow God to use us. It's really that simple. It's not that we got to know all this theology because half the time, some people ain't even paying attention to it anyway. Sometimes, Most of the time, life is caught more than it's taught. Because you ever said something, and you said it all day, but sometimes the kids ain't hearing words you said. they just, they just watching what you did. And that's the reality. So again, I, I know... God has set all of us up in different places in our world to spread the gospel. That's the whole point. We're here to minister to people. We're here to love on people when we get an opportunity. Amen? And, and I think we're done. So let's pray. Father, I love you so much, and thank you for allowing me to share. Lord, I pray that the words that go out will, will help someone to just be inspired to follow you, Lord, to, to walk with you better. Lord, and to go out and tell somebody, and maybe telling somebody is just being there. Lord, I thank you for giving us the wisdom and the strength to do that, and I give you praise for it all. In Yeshua's name, amen.